This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Harry Shearer, and you are listening to TV Confidential, a radio show about television. Ed Robertson, welcoming you to this week's edition of TV Confidential, radio talk show about television. Then we'll welcome back our friend Danelle Dadigan in our second hour. Danelle Dadigan, founder and president of the Hollywood Museum. Danelle recently collaborated with Grammy Award-winning pianist and music preservationist Michael Feinstein on a multimedia project that celebrates the life and legacy of Jose Iturbe. Jose Iturbe, one of the greatest and most popular classical pianist around the world for much of the 20th century and the first musical artist of any genre to have sold one million records. Hosea Turby left his mark on the world in many ways throughout his long career, not the least of which was introducing mainstream audiences to classical music through his appearance in movies, radio, and on television, including seven movies for MGM during the golden age of Hollywood and by accompanying such popular recording artists as Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, and Sammy Davis Jr. We'll celebrate the life of Jose Iturbe when Donnell Dadigan joins us in our second hour. We hope you stay tuned for that. Coming up later on this hour, we will bring you an encore presentation of a conversation that originally aired in April 2018 with Judy Norton. Judy Norton, the actress known around the world as Mary Ellen Walton on The Waltons. We hope you stay tuned for that as well. In the meantime, Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us for another edition of This Week in TV History. Tony's segment, as always, brought to us by our friends at Story Salon, Southern California's longest-running, regularly performing live storytelling ensemble, storysalon.com, facebook.com forward slash Story Salon. You can also enjoy This Week in TV History, the standalone podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find audio. This particular edition with Tony and Donna originally aired in April 2018. This is uh, something I really enjoy. Uh, April 22nd, 1978. So we're talking 40 years ago, right? It's hard to believe 40 years ago. The Blues Brothers make their world premiere on Saturday Night Live. Ah, okay. Okay. So, and I'm I'm reading this because there's a couple of details here, and I want to make sure I get this right. The characters and the band that Belushi and Aykroyd unveiled that took more than uh, two years to evolve. The first incarnation was SNL's first season, January 17th, 1976, and their appearance was uh, the song I'm a King Bee as Howard Shore and his all-bee band were playing so mm-hmm. it was the first time really that we saw the appearance of what would become jake and elwood but this you know 1978 this is when we see jake and elwood mm-hmm. we see the uh the pork pie hats the ray bands the the dark suits 
and the characters are fully developed. We don't know everything about these characters, but trust me, Dan Aykroyd, uh, you know, already had their backstories oh, and yeah. such. Yeah. What's interesting is later on this hour, Chuck Harder will join us for an inside look at the history of the monkeys. And ordinarily, I would never bring up the Blues Brothers and the monkeys in the same sentence, but when you think about it, like the monkeys, the Blues Brothers began as an act on yeah. Saturday Night Live, but they morphed into a real musical phenomenon, and they did albums, and they, they, toured. Could, they toured. Tony, were the Blues Brothers a sketch, or were they a musical act? Were they, they musical guests? This is, this is something uh, a little unique, because Dan Aykroyd and, Tom, and, and John Belushi wanted to have control of the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that they bring, you know, on a show like Saturday Night Live, and this is true for Mad TV and other shows like it, uh, a lot of the characters may have originally come from the Groundlings or Second City or other improv groups. A lot of the characters that we know had some origin uh, there, and then once they would appear on SNL, uh, Lorne Michaels owned that. You know, so these and and sometimes there were negotiations to own the rights to these characters. So if the Blues Brothers were appearing in a sketch, it would be property of Broadway Video, NBC, yeah. uh, SNL. And uh, they did they deliberately did not want to use these characters because they wanted ownership of the characters from the get-go. So they only, when they, originally, they only appeared on Saturday Night Live as a musical act. I think recently, a few years ago, when Tina Fey was still doing Weekend Update, Elwood and Mac, John Goodman's character, appeared uh, doing a commentary on Weekend Update. Uh, they appeared as those characters. But other than that, they have never appeared in sketches. And that was basically so ah. Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi ah. could own them. Ah, very good. I, so we've really only seen, you know, on concert stage and in uh, two feature films and... Uh, uh, a very interesting documentary that uh, Dan Aykroyd did with the late Tom Davis, mm-hmm. uh, Franken and Davis. Yes. Tom Davis pretty much acting as the interviewer, but in the documentary, he's interviewing both Dan Aykroyd and Elwood Blues. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah, that's so, cool. yeah, and it, it's around there in the ether. I think he they did it for one of the cable networks, and uh, you probably find it on YouTube now. But he is interviewing Dan Aykroyd on the creation of these characters and the history he's interviewing Elwood on the music and so but they're in a, a diner and they're both in the diner at the same t- you know in the same booth and they're having a rubber biscuit yeah they're <laughs> you know I don't remember they're having a rubber biscuit, a rubber biscuit? Uh, yeah <laughs> which was what yeah I mean going back uh, to some of the stuff that they did because they you know they were doing rhythm and blues uh-huh. uh, Dan Aykroyd Canadian loved American blues, mm-hmm. John Belushi was much more of a, a rock and roll guy and a very serious, like heavy metal. Joe, like Joe Cocker, Joe Cocker, uh, Black Flag, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. By the way, his Joe Cocker, uh, if dead, you on. Could, dead on, dead mm-hmm. on, uh, and and you could only fully appreciate it when you see the two of them on stage mm-hmm. together, and he is doing it alongside Joe Cocker. But John Belushi was really not exposed to the blues. And growing up in Chicago, Dan Aykroyd was quite surprised mm-hmm. because a lot of blues history, uh, you know, we associate New Orleans and a place like Kansas City for blues, but Chicago is where blues was electrified. Mm-hmm. 
So it did migrate to Chicago and you know, kind of evolved in Chicago uh, with a more electric sound. So Dan was a little surprised that John was not aware. So on their own time, he was introducing him to all sorts of blues players. And these, you know, these blues players were just, you know, incredible. And John was falling in love with it. But I think, you know, Dan really you know, started with this love of a, a true American form of music, by the way. Have, have you heard their cover of the Perry Mason theme? I forget which album it was on. I forget. I think it might have been their second. It was not. The first one, Briefcase Full of Blues, was mm-hmm. a concert. They opened for Steve Martin at yes. the Universal Amphitheater. Yeah. And I think this was uh, 1979 uh, that they did that, if memory serves. But uh, Steve Martin did a couple of concerts at the amphitheater. Mm-hmm. And you have to keep it also just for perspective. You know, Steve Martin was selling out concert venues. Yes. The Universal Amphitheater when it existed. As a, as a stand-up comic. As a stand-up comic. Uh, you know, you're talking 6,000 seats, which yeah. was huge. Yeah, this, this is the height t- of the wild and crazy guy. Food. Yes. Mm-hmm. The white suit, the arrow through the head, yes. period. And the bunny. And, and probably at that time the most favorite SNL host. Oh, yeah. You know, he was on at least a couple of times a season. He Let's w- get small. Let's get small, yeah. <laughs> at that time, it was pretty customary. Uh, season premiere, Steve Martin was yeah. the host. Yeah. Uh, so you had these guys, and they recorded the album. I think it was on MCA Records. And, you know, that led to more stuff. But th- I think the second one was, uh, was it um, Made in America? I think, I think it was their I, second I album. And Yeah. And it has the heretofore unheard lyrics to the Perry Mason theme song. Yes. So and I'm sure you can find it out there. Yeah, Made yeah. in America was the second one, uh, and then they did the uh, soundtrack album, yeah. which uh, has a very different sound because you had, uh, you know, just uh, you are you are hearing the the soundtrack from the movie, so the the sound quality is which, perfect. Which which brings up another because we're we're talking about Belushi and we're yeah. talking about how I mean even though. Belushi and Aykroyd and the, the other original not ready for time prime time right. players plus Bill Murray because he, he, he was not one of the original ones but yeah. he to me he's a, he is yeah. but the that core six or seven even though they were breaking ground and they were creating their own putting their own stamp on culture it's easy to forget that they all came of age as baby boomers and watching classic shows such as Perry Mason, such as The Untouchables. And so when they did those little prompt homages mm-hmm. to that, that kind of reminded that they're no different than we are in that respect. Yeah, so we're slightly younger mm-hmm. uh, from that standpoint. They also were people who thought television was crap. Television at that time. Now, they grew up on I Love Lucy and the Dick Van Dyke show and had a love for, you know, things like Perry John, Mason. John Belushi told Robert Stack, you know, when they worked together, you were the man when he was Elliot Smith. You were the man. So the fact that he had a chance to work with Robert Stack was a big deal for him. Yeah. Well, Dan Aykroyd uh, did Robert Stack uh, in a couple of sketches yeah. also. And did Joe Friday once. It was, a, yeah, it was Dragnet. They were in drag. Yeah. And then later did, you know, the Dragnet movie. Yeah. So you knew that the the classic classic stuff that we talk about off that was uh, who they admired yeah. uh, and 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 loved and uh, you know Desi Arnaz Senior was a host on the show you That's know right. just oh wow. a wonderful host yeah I mean it was really amazing because you could see time had not been at this in the seventies time was not kind to him he, he was would, not he was but I uh, and author he, the best title of a book ever 
A book. A book. <laughs> which is, by the way, not to digress from it, is a great book. book. <laughs> it is like you are across the table and having drinks with the guy, and he is telling stories, and he's basically telling his life story, and somebody is documenting. And while he's talking, he could be a teenager in Cuba before the revolution, and then he'll segue into something amusing that happened on the set of I Love Lucy, and then he's back in Cuba, and he's and he's bringing you up his life story, and uh, it is... I'll have to hunt down a copy you, of it. It is very worth... But I think you should just have light a cigar, have a nice I can do that. glass of rum. I can do that. And a quiet evening and just start reading. It is that, I mean, it's that type of read. Robert Stack did a dead-on impression of Desi Arnaz. Yes, he did. <laughs> uh, you know, sadly, um, Desi died, I think, just before Lucy was inducted in the Television Hall of Fame. Yes. Uh, when the TV Academy announced, I think, at the Emmys that year, that there was going to be a television hall of fame and the first inductees included Lucille Ball and Norman Lear and I can't remember the other ones that that particular I think the following year Desi was inducted but uh sometime between the announcement and the actual ceremony uh Desi died and there were actual plans for Desi to be presenting oh this award the, the Can you imagine the, the plan Desi was to present to Lucy oh, wow. the award uh, you know, or, you know, he was the one. And, uh, he, you know, he unfortunately died uh, before that happened. And Robert Stack uh, was, you know, kind of the fill-in yeah. for Desi. Yeah, and, and he had said something. I think it, you know, he was talking about his conversation when Desi was pitching the when, idea when, of when, the untouchables. Yeah, because Stack did not want to do television. Stack was a film actor. And, yeah. and that was back in the day where... Television was the bad stepchild. You yeah, know, you'd, you'd, if if you were a serious movie actor, you did not do television. It was right. A step no, down. and I I think that 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 thinking was up until recently. Yeah, I yeah. mean, really, up until our, our adulthood, uh, that that was kind of the uh, the feeling, and and I think uh, the same sort of animosity towards commercials. Mm-hmm. Which we're seeing change also. Now yeah. you see George Clooney George doing Clooney the press, espresso. Doing so I think that's, that's changed. But yeah, but uh, yeah, Robert Sachs said, said something like, you know, he came to me and he said, we're going to make the best damn television show. Yes. You know, you look at him also as he had some brilliant ideas and nobody was taking him seriously. Yeah. And then I Love Lucy comes out and everybody's at his door. Mm-hmm. And we're talking Danny Thomas, Sheldon Leonard, all of these people. Because, you know, he had the vision. But anyway, to go back... Uh, it all relates to the Blues it, Brothers. It all, all relates to the to the Blues Brothers. Tony Figaro and Donna Allen are with us as we remember the debut appearance of the Blues Brothers on Saturday Night Live, which occurred 45 years ago this week in TV history on April 22, 1978. This particular segment, Tony and Donna, originally aired in April 2018. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
when you look at the caliber of talent that uh, Dan Aykroyd was put together to create the band, because mm-hmm. you, know, you had uh, Howard Shore and Paul Schaefer, who were basically the Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. band mm-hmm. in the early years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Schaefer, I think we all know, Howard Shore would later go uh, and do... Paul, Paul Schaefer, who, who did a dead-on Don Kirshner. Did a dead-on yes. Don Kirshner and introduced the Blues Brothers once as Don Kirshner. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and he, uh, yeah, he did. He did a couple of times yeah. that that nailed it. And when Don Kirshner died, by the way, uh, on Letterman, Paul Schaefer, every every song was a uh, you know like monkeys or mm-hmm. or boys in heart, and uh, you know just well, he wonderful was, he tribute. Was, he was the man with the golden ear. Yeah, it, just wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I thought musical tribute that Paul Schaefer played to Don Kirshner. I don't know how CBS was able to get away with all the license. Because other than the theme, every little intro, outro, all that, it was all some music associated with Don Kirshner. I'm sure they worked it out. <laughs> I'm sure they worked it out, yeah. They probably knew they had to work it out. Otherwise, Dave would have material for two weeks. Well, we couldn't play that because CBS won't let us do it. You know, yeah, oh yeah, I think it was much better that that they play along yes, or, yes. At, or at, they would at, not hear the end of it. Otherwise, it would turn them into General Electric. <laughs> yeah, let's, what are we talking about? Uh the Blues Brothers earning three top 40 hits, Soul Man, Rubber Biscuit. Rubber Biscuit. Rubber Biscuit, and Give Me Some Lovin'. Yeah. Oh. I think Soul Man, though, was their signature song. I mean, that's... What year What year did they do the movie? Uh, 1980. Okay, I re- what I remember... So I remember they were doing 1941 just before. Right, with Robert yeah. Stack. Okay, the two things I remember, the car, the big spectacular car chase with the police, with the black in, and white crashing in Chicago. Each other, in Chicago. Yeah. And I remember the show stopping number with Aretha Franklin. Oh, yes. That's amazing. Which was amazing. That's why I think, you know, the, the movie soundtrack is so yeah. you have Aretha Franklin, you have Ray you Charles, <laughs> um, John Lee Hooker, yeah. James Brown. It's the preacher. It's the preacher. So you have all of, all of this talent. Oh, Cab Calloway. Oh, that's right. Cab, yeah. And I had had a story at Story Salon because I, I had the uh, soundtrack album. Uh-huh. And my stepmother invited our pastor over, and this is like right after Belushi died. And he's, he, I had my, my, the album was on the kitchen counter when he walked in, and I thought I was going to get this horrible lecture about the, you know, because he had done several sermons on the evils of rock and roll. And he's looking at my Blues Brothers album, and he asked to borrow it. Oh, wow. Mm. And primarily he wanted uh, Cap Calloway singing Minnie the Moocher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't know at the time what Minnie the Moocher is about. Um, uh, in modern society, we would refer to her as a coke whore. Yeah. Uh, you did not use that word in the song, but that's basically, it is a love song dedicated to <laughs> someone um, who exchanges services yes. for cocaine. Yes. Uh, and, you know, but he, he, you know, and, and it just opened a dialogue about Cap Calloway, Bobby Darren, all that stuff. Um, just, and getting to know, oh, wow, you are a preacher, but you love music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was kind of a, a little eye-opening uh, for me. But, kind of uh, humanized him? Kind of yeah, humanized absolutely. him, and I think yeah. uh, overall it was is a much better uh, uh, relationship. Uh, but look at the Blues Brothers Band, because you did have Paul Schaefer. He did. Uh, he was uh, the keyboard player for the Blues Brothers Band. He was not in the movie because he was committed to Gilder Radner's Broadway mm-hmm. show, which was Gilder Live from New York. Mm-hmm. And he was in sketches. And uh, actually, he did play, I think, Don Kirchner in that as well, yeah, introducing right. uh, Rhonda Slice. Yes. Uh, but he was uh, very, very... Um, 
instrumental in that. So, uh, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Uh, there was a little friction because yeah. John Belushi was very upset that he could not do the Blues Brothers movie. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, the piano player, the keyboard player was, uh, was it Murphy Dunn? I think you're uh, correct. Yeah. Murph, and then, you know, Murphy, Murphy and the Murph Tones, yes. you know, and they're playing. The, that character was written for Paul Schaefer, ah. kind of the, uh, the lounge character. You know, don't go changing. You know, that was, <laughs> that was written for Paul Schaefer, and Paul Schaefer couldn't do it. Uh, Howard Shore, of course, you know, went on to do a lot of work in film. Mm-hmm. But you had Matt Guitar Murphy, uh, who uh, I think he's still around. He is uh, just an incredible blues guitar player. And you look at this guy, and he's all muscle. Yeah. His his arms are gigantic, and to watch him so eloquently play the guitar. And you'd usually see him on stage wearing a tight muscle T-shirt, something that you would see, like The Rock wearing. Uh, you had, I know he's uh, one of the, was it, uh, Donald Duck Dunn, mm-hmm. um, who's no longer around. Lou Marini was a sax player, who was also the sax player, I believe, with Saturday Night Live. Uh, Tom Bones Malone was the trumpet player who became uh, who then would later on play trumpet with Paul Schaefer and uh, and Letterman's band. Um, Alan Rubin, no, Alan Rubin was the trumpet player. Uh, Mister Fabulous, uh, who did have some acting chops. His character had a little bit more to do. Uh, I know he 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 died a couple of years ago. Um, who else was in the band? Um, Willie Hall was the drummer I think, in the movies. Uh, yeah, I mean, but you had this incredible roster. I was going to say, you're, you're, you're doing a pretty good job on yeah, your I'm, own. Yeah, I'm <laughs> impressed. It's incredible. To, and, and some of these people at the time, they were only known in the world of blues. Yeah. So when Dan Aykroyd said, we should get this guy, they're going, who is that guy? And it's like, and then all after the Blues Brothers, not only were these guys made very well known and their bank accounts uh, very well uh, enhanced, but I would say Dan Aykroyd uh, primarily introduced a new generation, uh, uh, let's say a rock and roll pre-MTV uh, generation, to uh, something that is truly an American musical art form, which I think had been forgotten, mm-hmm. you know, after uh, Elvis. You know, and you think so much of these of earlier uh, people that worked in rhythm blues were an incredible influence on Elvis and Little Richard, oh, yeah. and then, of course, the Beatles, and uh, you know, then after the British invasion, I think um, a lot of people kind of forgot uh, this wonderful American art form, and Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, mainly Dan Aykroyd, was able to uh, not only introduce America to this musical art form, but to some really incredible musical artists. Uh, so, I mean, this is... This is more than just a sketch. <laughs> it's, well, it's... This is this is a lot bigger than I'm Chevy Chase and you're not, yes. and uh, isn't that special? This was something that um, uh, culturally, I mean, made a, a huge change in um, American music, uh, reviving um, a marketability. And imagine uh, how many musicals were we doing in that time period? Uh, Blues Brothers is technically a musical it's comedy. Technically yeah. a musical. Okay, there was Grease. Grease, yeah, Grease was done for the big screen. An adaptation of a Broadway play. Correct. Yeah, uh, one was Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Yeah, another adaptation. 80 or, 80 or yeah, yeah, another adaptation yeah. of a Broadway play. Yeah. Steve Martin tried to do Pennies from Heaven, 
Well, he did pennies. From he, well, I mean, he he I, he I should say he tried was, with pennies. It, from it heaven. was not well received. At the it was not well off. received, which was a definite homage to the great MGM musicals. Oh, yeah. Another adaptation, The Wiz. The Wiz, yeah. He's on down the road. So, you know, uh, so not only that, you had something that was not an adaptation, an adaptation of a adaptation. Broadway play. You had, you know, an original musical comedy which elements of action and adventure and the very dangerous John Landis <laughs> directing. <laughs> and that, that film was fun and it holds up to this day. Yeah. You know, to see. And uh, also we have to give a certain shout out to the city of Chicago and their mayor at that time, Jane Byrne. Uh, the city of Chicago for 30 years prior so you're, uh, to the Blues Brothers would not allow a Hollywood film to shoot in their city. Mayor Daly? Mayor Daly Sr. Uh, did not like that every time Hollywood was in Chicago to make a movie, it was about Al Capone or the gangsters or the 20s. And it always uh, depicted Chicago in that light. Al Capone, who was good to Rosemary. Al Capone, who was good to <laughs> Rosemary, yes. And Al Capone, who I think was good to a lot of people. Yeah. He just had to, happens to be also the world's most notorious guy. Yes. Always brought flowers to his mother. Yes. You know. You know, I, I'm just putting something together. I began my career in Chicago after, you know, post-Blues Brothers, but more and more productions mm -hmm. when I was there were starting to come into Chicago. It was mostly features at the time. Around the time I left, television was starting to come in. But I think you can credit the Blues Brothers for opening the door to a lot of Hollywood oh, productions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Blues Brothers and I think Mayor Jane Byrne, who saw the potential, because Chicago was not in great shape. I think uh, New York was in worse shape at that same time, mm -hmm. and that got attention. But Chicago was – there were sections of Chicago that were not in great shape. And the idea of movie companies coming in and creating jobs and revenue and all that was a wonderful opportunity for Chicago. It was a beautiful showcase of Chicago. And then later on, Untouchables, you know, the last couple of Batman movies mm -hmm. used it as Gotham City. So then to see Chicago, uh, The Fugitive, which I believe has been mentioned on this show yes. a few times. Uh, Harrison Ford's, you know, that, uh, again, yeah. what a wonderful. Yeah, they, uh, fit, they shot it during the uh, uh, the St. Patrick's Day parade, yes. if I remember correctly. And then the, the great line about how why, how is it that they can turn the, the river green <laughs> and they can't dye it blue the rest yeah. of the year. Yeah. Uh, but a wonderful uh, way of uh, showing Chicago as well. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Well, the Blues Brothers did that. And uh, now uh, Dick Wolf has three shows out of Chicago. Chicago. Empire's out of Chicago. Yeah. I have some friends that work production in Chicago now. And the the industry is growing, building studios. We should – my friend uh, Walt – Wally Pedrazic, uh -huh. um, he's the curator. Uh, I believe he's the curator of the Museum of Television in Chicago. We need to have him back on. Uh, That'd yeah. be great. Yeah, yeah. And I've always wanted to go there and yeah. uh, see. Uh, well, you bring you, you, you know, bring it up many times on our shows. So yeah. Well, we Sengulli's out of Chicago. Yeah. Well, a we big should. Fan. Yeah. Um, well, but a lot of television that that we loved, you know, had, had Chicago roots too. Um, you know, Kukla Fran and Ollie and, yeah. and stuff like that. But just from conversations I've had with people who are now working in production in Chicago, some of the bad parts of town have been revitalized, and there's studio facilities there, and there are jobs there, and you know. So I think the Blues Brothers definitely uh, broke some ground in, in that area. Chattertelevision.blogspot.com, StorySalon.com, Facebook.com/forward/slash/StorySalon. Donna's four-part romantic novel series, Fall Again, all four volumes. 
Amazon.com as well as Fall Again Series.com. You can enjoy Tony's standalone podcast this week in TV history, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find podcasts. Judy Norton will join us when we come back on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.